How do we revolutionize cancer care? What innovations can solve global food scarcity? Can the next big leap in drug development come from a place you might not expect? These are the questions that drive us on New Wave, a podcast where curiosity meets life-changing science. In Nova Scotia, a new wave of pioneers are answering these questions, from reimagining how we treat the most daunting diseases to tackling the challenges of feeding a growing planet. Their stories are as inspiring as they are impactful. I'm Taylor McGilvery. Join me as we dive into these extraordinary narratives. We're not just talking about scientific breakthroughs. We're exploring how these advancements touch lives, reshape communities, and pave the way for a brighter future. Subscribe to New Wave on your favorite platform. Be part of a journey that takes you to the heart of innovation and shows how, in Nova Scotia, we're not just asking questions, we're finding answers. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Hello, lovers. It's Bridie, and I'm here this week to introduce you to our guest, Dr. Justin Miller. Dr. Miller is a social psychologist, author, and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute. He's one of those cool people that studies sex for a job. He is also the author of Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. He also has a great blog and podcast you should definitely check out called Sex and Psychology. And also, apparently, he's a pinball wizard, which we did not talk about on the podcast, but I would love to have known that about him. Anywho, we talked to Justin about polyamory, trends in dating since COVID, and threesomes, a few of our favorite topics. Hope you enjoy, and we'll see you on the other side. Justin, it's so nice to have you back in 
uh, this space again. I feel like it was so recently that we spoke, but I guess it's been almost like feels like a half a year almost. Fuck, I don't know. I mean, with COVID, if you, everything feels like it was yesterday slash 10 years ago. I, I feel like I've been on this constant acid trip where time doesn't exist. <laughs> it's hard to, hard to grasp any, any kind of time, concept of time. Um, uh, but we are, we're really, really excited to have you back on the show, Justin. Um, for folks that maybe missed uh, our original conversation, um, why don't you give yourself a little introduction and tell us about the work that you do and, and the podcast that you host? Sure. So my name is Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute, and I study the science of sex. And for the last decade, I have run a blog called Sex and Psychology, where I take the latest sex research and translate it for a general audience. And then one of my quarantine projects was to start a podcast, the Sex and Psychology Podcast. And initially, my reason for starting it was because I just needed to talk to people. Yeah, <laughs> because right, I wasn't right getting my need for social interaction met. And I found that I actually liked podcasting even more than blogging because I was having all of these amazing conversations with all of these like really fascinating people. And the nice thing I found about podcasting is that when you start an episode, you don't know where it's going to go and it takes you off in all these different directions. And so unlike blogging where it's pretty predictable, you know, the beginning, middle and end before you start with a podcast, you never know what you're going to get. So I like that I can meet my need for social connection while also getting that spontaneity and excitement out of it. Yeah, totally. It's I, so it's cool too that you're because you're like a professional researcher. So when I listen to your podcast episodes, I'm like, how how do you like? I can only imagine what's going on behind your forehead, like processing <laughs> information. It must be such a cool way of of like a side like gig to the kind of actual like on paper research that you that you do yeah and the really nice thing about it in addition to everything else is that it's this form of learning that i'm constantly expanding my knowledge base and i'm getting new research ideas from all of these amazing guests that i'm speaking with that would not happen if i was just say writing a blog and had read their research paper so you can really take a deep dive and explore some of the unanswered questions and sometimes it's also like really fucking funny so yeah yeah totally What's a, what's a recent conversation that you've had that kind of, uh, that kind of expanded your mind or, or gave you some inspiration into, into, uh, a potential research down the road? Well, one of my favorite episodes recently was with Dr. Lisa Dawn Hamilton. And the theme of the episode was what we don't know about sex. And, you know, most of my episodes are like, what do we know? And that episode was just taking a totally different approach to say that, you know, a lot of the things that we think we know about sex, even from a research perspective, are just wrong. And so we, we got into a whole bunch of different things in that podcast. But the thing that's standing out to me most right now is, you know, we were talking about the definition of sex and how different people define it in different ways and they find totally different things pleasurable. And so when you're surveying people about their sex lives and their sexual practices, you don't necessarily know what they're talking about if you don't ask the question in a really specific way. And so mm. um, one of the funny things that my guests mentioned was that, you know, she had conversations with two cisgender heterosexual men on two different days back to back. And they were both talking about 
how they like to orgasm. And one of them was like, well, I would only ever want to orgasm inside of a partner's vagina. Like, why would you ever not want to orgasm inside of somebody? Mm -hmm. And then the next day she hears from somebody who's like, why wouldn't you want to spray your cum everywhere? Right. And so it's so (laughs) interesting, you know, like how we experience pleasure and people can have these totally different ideas of like what feels good. And, you know, we don't tend to ask these kinds of questions on surveys and it inspired me to want to do the, the sort of, where do you come study? You know, how do people like to have their orgasms and what percentage of people like to do this versus that and that's a question that's never been asked empirically so i'd love to do the study at some point oh that's super interesting i I think it's also it just makes me think about the things that we don't typically think about like i've never thought about that i've never thought about where is my favorite place to come i don't (laughs) think anyone's ever asked me that and and i but i get i I get i and there's something very there's something very satisfying about coming inside of another human but i also really like seeing I mean, I, I, because I live with cystic fibrosis, I don't have much come to get begin with. Like it's like a little dribble of coconut water. Like that's kind of my, <laughs> that's kind of my, my load. But sometimes like if I'm, if I don't, if I don't ejaculate for like a few days in a row, I'll know that I'll have to me, what to me is a lot of come like a half a thimble. Yeah. 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 Totally. <laughs> totally. Just, it's still just like a little, bleep. um, but, but it, I like to see it. Mm-hmm. It, when I know that I have some in me, I'm like, oh, I want to see it. I want to see it go somewhere. When I think of like so surveys too that I've filled out for research, generally the options are laid out for me because mm. I feel like if you just leave a blank space for someone to reply in their own writing, people are less inclined to fill out those surveys because it seems like they're going to take longer or it requires more work. But then you're limited, right, to just whatever answers you can come up with as the researcher. When you when you say that you and and Dr. Hamilton were talking about um, uh, like the things that we don't know about sex, was that specifically from like a research standpoint, or or are you also referring to like the things that that you know your average layperson doesn't think about and or know about sex in general? It's both. So one of the things that we sort of opened the episode with was talking about what is the G-spot really, right? And people have a tendency to think that the G-spot is, you know, this distinct piece of anatomy. And it's really not like there, there's no distinct spot that we can point to and say, that's the G-spot. It's actually the intersection of the clitoris, the urethra, and the vagina, and it's where they all come together. And so it's actually more the clitoro-urethro-vaginal complex is sort of the term that some scientists have used to, to kind of rename this because it's more anatomically accurate. And so you know, I think that's an important misconception that a lot of people have because you have a lot of doctors out there who are performing something called G-spot amplification. And basically they're injecting this area that is supposedly the G-spot to triple its size so that it's more sensitive. And it's like, what are you actually injecting, right? Um, so yeah, there's, there's all kinds of things that we think we know about sex. Like another example is what is the average penis size? Well, how do you determine that, you know, which men are going to be willing to participate in a study of penis size and who's going to do the measurements. And, 
you know, there's probably a big selection bias, right? Where maybe Mm. men who are larger might be more comfortable to go in. And so that might inflate the average. And then you have lots of studies of penis size that are based on um, medical patients where it's like some clinician stretched their flaccid penis and measured it. And it's like, so is stretched penis length (laughs) um, Mm -hmm. a, a good enough proxy for erect length? And why do we only measure length? We don't measure girth when we're doing these studies. So, you know, there's actually a lot we don't know about penis size either right yeah totally this uh this g-spot what did you say it was called g-spot um uh the the urethro vaginal complex no but the this this uh this injection it's it's to it's to, oh yeah to uh to enlarge the the quote-unquote g-spot it, yes the, it's called g-spot amplification yeah g-spot amplification. amplification i've never heard of that that's that's wild so this is a like an elective procedure that people are doing in order to enhance their sex life? Yep. And they're paying a lot of money for it. And people are paying a lot of money for a lot of untested treatments to try and improve their sex life in some way. You know, another example would be penis enlargement procedures. Like those are very untested and very risky. And many men have been disfigured as a result (gasps) of these surgeries that they have pursued. And it's like, and they're paying tens of thousands of dollars to do it. And I think that that ultimately speaks to how much sexual insecurity people have if they're willing to pay so much money for these untested unproven treatments because they're they're searching for something that they think is going to make their sex life better or is going to remove or reduce that insecurity and i think that's why we need so much more sex education about you know what what is normal and you know most of the people who are seeking penis enlargement like if you go to some of these websites where doctors are performing penis enlargement you can see before and after photos and you can see the before photos like those guys are pretty normal size and many of them are well above average to begin with and it's like why do you feel this need to add extra length? And, and what does that say about us as a culture? What Whoa. does it say? Because I feel like uh, the answer is much simpler. You know, it, it doesn't require too much more than the tools you already have at your disposal. And a, and a lot of, like you said, like insecurity and that kind of thing to be dealt with. So do, do we just feel like external factors are going to be more effective? Yeah. And so it's a great question. And I guess the way that I sort of think about this is, you know, it's one thing if you really have a sexual problem or sexual difficulty that you're trying to seek treatment for. So if you really cannot reach orgasm or you consistently reach orgasm too quickly or you can't become aroused or stay aroused, like that is and, and this is distressing to you, you know, that is a problem in need of treatment and there are therapeutic interventions for that. But when it comes to something like I need to modify my anatomy, my body to have this extra large penis or whatever it is that you're talking about, or women like who seek labial <laughs> reduction surgery to, mm. you know, a- adjust the appearance of their labia. It's like, where does this come from? And I think a lot of it is just people don't know what normal is and they think they're abnormal because they're not used to seeing other people's penises and vaginas or vulvas i should say except for what they see in pornography which again there's a big selection effect there and so i think that creates a lot of unnecessary insecurity and shame why i i'm i'm still stuck on this this (laughs) g-spot amplification and the the penis enlargement like is this are these procedures being done by like snake oil salesmen like what's the are, are are they legitimate doctors pro- providing these services 
that, I mean, it seems like a bit of a risky, even risky for the doctor to be, to be going down this route, would it not? So many of the people who are performing these procedures are physicians. Um, of course, there are some people who get kind of underground medical procedures, which, you know, you should never go that route. You know, that's where there's a big risk of danger. But even if it's somebody who is a doctor, they often perform treatments uh, that, you know, maybe don't have FDA clearance or approval or don't have scientific testing behind them or they're using a drug off label, right? Doctors do have some freedom to kind of practice outside of the lines. You know, another example of this would be there are some doctors who inject Botox into men's scrotums to make them hang lower, right? Now, Botox is not approved formally by, say, the FDA as a, you know, treatment to make your balls hang lower, but you know, there are some doctors who do it. So, you know, and part of that is just doctors have some latitude with this, but you know, the question is, should they be doing this? Are they adequately informing their patients of the risks of some Mm. of these procedures? You know, with something like Scrotox, you know, the risk level is going to be much lower compared to, you know, as long as they're injecting it in the right places and not injecting it into the actual testicle itself. Right. Right. But with something like penis enlargement, where they're inserting an implant underneath the skin of the penis, um, you know, that's, that's a really risky procedure. Yeah. I remember recently, I know Scrotox, I'm like, can that be the episode name? Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, There was a story floating around not too long ago um, about a local woman here in Halifax who had just recently had um, her, her, she had had breast enlargement surgery as a younger person. And then like less than 10 years later, she was having them removed after kind of someone just casually mentioned she had been seeing, she had had all kinds of health problems for years and someone just casually mentioned to her, like it could be your implants. And it turned out that they were like super poisoning her and yeah. And, and like that's common. And I'm in a, I'm in a, in a massage therapy program right now and informed consent is all the like, rage of course in our training and it's about that it's like did yes you you came here for this but did you know that here are all the potential side effects here's all your rights involved in this Mm. treatment and it just seems like really short-sighted of of us to have jumped on the breast enlargement bandwagon Mm. so thoughtlessly do you do you justin do you think that like a lot of the the desire or need to go through with these types of procedures or um, or even the way that we like view ourselves. I know, I know you mentioned like what we see in porn kind of plays a role in what we think is normal. But do you think that the the general lack of communication when it comes to talking to our partners about sex or talking to ourselves about sex is is playing a, a role here? Absolutely. I mean, for example, if you look at studies of heterosexual men and women, and you look at how men feel about their penises versus their female partners, you find that you have a much higher number of men who are unhappy with their size and um, 
you know, most of the women are perfectly happy with their partner size, right. right? So you have a lot of these men who are sort of needlessly concerned about this. Like their partner isn't complaining about it. They're not clamoring for a larger penis or anything, mm. but for some reason, the guys feel like there's something wrong with them. And, and so part of that might stem from communication and, mm. Part of it might stem from porn. Part of it might stem from body dysmorphic disorder. You know, there can be all kinds of things that that could play a role in this. One of the things that we just recently, I think we were even off air, Brady and I were just talking about, um, it was a, it was a, an interview with Dan Savage that came out recently. And one of the things that he was talking, he was talking about like how he got into the work that he's he's doing now as as like a columnist and and answer it like a Q and A guru when it comes to sex and sexuality, um, and one of the things that he was talking about, and I'm definitely going to misquote him here, but it was something to the effect of like, um, heterosexual people are typically just the worst at communicating their their needs and like their 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 sexual their sexual needs, their desires, their thoughts and feelings when it comes to sex. The the LGBTQ plus community typically is far better at this mode of communication. And a lot of this stems from just the, the history of like sexual health risks within the community of LGBTQ folks. And you know, so it's like I, th- I think the reference he made was was talking about you know the the AIDS epidemic and how that that really forced a lot of uh, a lot of homosexual males to like be better at communicating about sex with their partners and um, it made me think about how we so you know right now and for the last year and a half the entire planet is going through a health crisis. And I know that at the time of COVID early days, when I was casually dating, um, COVID definitely like played into the way I had to communicate with people that I was going to potentially have sex with. Um, and I think that's as, as shitty as COVID has been, that that's a, that's a net positive. I think, you know, it's like making me a little bit, forcing me to be a bit more proactive about communicating with, with potential partners. Um, so all of this to say, um, I know that you've done a little bit of research into how COVID has kind of had an effect on our sex lives. Um, is communication kind of built into mm-hmm. the, the, the way that COVID has, has changed sex for a lot of people? It is. And so we conducted a demographically representative survey of 2000 Americans this summer. This was a joint project between the Kinsey Institute and Love Honey, which is a worldwide retailer of sex toys and sexual wellness products. And we conducted this study to look at how the pandemic has changed sex and relationships. And one of the things we asked about was sexual communication. And so if you look 
at people in relationships specifically, more than 40% of them said that they now have an easier time communicating about sex with their partners. And if you look mm -hmm. at the data from singles and daters, um, you're seeing a, a high percentage of them reporting increased willingness to communicate with their partners about, say, safer sex practices and also their COVID status. And so, you know, regardless of relationship status, we've seen this increase in sexual communication. And we've also seen a change in online dating behaviors where people are talking more with their partners before they meet in person, which I think is a, a good thing. You know, yeah. online dating has become less superficial and more in depth in some ways. And to the extent that you cultivate more intimacy before you meet someone, I think that can help things to maybe start out on a stronger foot, but it can also give you the opportunity to maybe weed out people who might not be a good fit earlier on before you go through the process of actually dating in person. Mm. How has COVID changed like the world of, of kink uh, when it comes to, to folks having sex who might not have been very kinky before beforehand? Well, it seems to have made us kinkier. Right? <laughs> okay. So people have gotten more sexually experimental. So we, we did a study last year at the Kinsey Institute where we found that about one in five people just in the very early stages of lockdown had tried something new sexually. And when we look at the data that we collected this summer, it jumped to 52% who said that they had tried something new. And we also asked people, have your sexual interests changed in any way. And a majority said that they did. And of those who reported a change, 73% said that they became kinkier. And kinky was kind of defined as, you know, interest in more non-mainstream sexual activities. And so we also asked about, you know, specific types of things people tried. And we see rises in uh, BDSM activities, for example. More people were sharing and acting on their sexual fantasies, incorporating sex toys into their sex lives. Uh, you know, there were all kinds of ways that people added novelty and especially kink into their sexual routines. Why? Yeah. Is this because, is this because, well, I'm stuck here with you, so let's like try something new? <laughs> That's or what is I was this like, it's like boredom. we're all going to die? Yeah. Throw caution to the wind. Yeah, right, like, right. What do you think? I can't. Yeah. Well, part of it might be, I can't see anyone else. So let's role play so I can pretend you're someone else for a while. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, yeah. so, so that might be part of it, you know, and I think boredom is, is certainly at play, but I think there's a few other things. One is that some people really just wanted to feel alive. And so they were searching for mm. like very intense activities and sensations, you know, for many, this pandemic was a situation where they had an increased fear of death and a recognition of their own mortality. And sometimes that can prompt people to change their sexual behavior in ways that, you know, make them feel more alive and help them cope with that fear of death. And then I think for other people, it was just a way of generally coping with stress because we know that stress tends to make it harder to become aroused and stay aroused. But if you're engaging in a new and novel activity that can really bring you into the moment, help you to, to stay aroused, to have an orgasm. And so I think part of it was just sort of this adaptive way of dealing with a really super stressful situation. Totally. I mean, that, that, uh, that piece on, on meditating on your, on your own mortality and, and trying to find ways to, to be more at peace with, with your own death, like that, that resonates huge with me. I mean, like, you know, living with CF, um, and, having meditated on a shortened life expectancy for my entire adult life. It's not the only reason we're polyamorous, but like that, 
played into our decision to become polyamorous. That that was at least one sliver of the of the overall decision. Um, so that's really it. I mean that that totally resonates with me to hear you say that. I I was kind of thinking that it was like. I was expecting you to say that like porn viewing just skyrocketed and podcast listening skyrocketed and people are just inspired by like the things they were hearing and the stuff they were watching, <laughs> um, which I'm sure I'm sure there's like a small part of that. That's true. Um, and I'll just say that there is just so I feel smarter. But um, that 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 piece on death, that's that's really fascinating. And and yeah, like, of of course, of course, we're going to see. Of course, we're going to see massive change across all aspects of our lives when, when you are forced to sit and think about the fact that you are, you are finite and your time is yeah. finite and you have, as far as we know, one life and, uh, and might as well, you know, stick something up your ass if you've never done it before to see how it well, feels, you know? And there was a lot of anal exploration yeah. that happened among our participants. You know, I think it was, oh, I, I can't remember the exact number off the top of my head, but it was a, a substantial number of those who had tried anal sex before who said that they did it for the first time during the pandemic. Uh, and so I think it's related to, you know, what we're talking about here, but I think related to that fear of death, piece is the fact that a lot of people recognize, like, I don't know how much time I have. I don't know if we're going to go back into another lockdown or how long this thing is going to go on. And so I think there's also that desire to do things while you can and for some to make up for lost time, because, you know, many of us lost this big chunk of our lives, or maybe we had planned to go out and explore and travel and see the world and do these other things. And so now it's kind of like, well, how can I meet that need for self-expansion and self-exploration? And I think a convenient way to do that is often through sex. Yeah, totally. Turn Me On Podcast will be back after this short break. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash boast. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
What's your insight into what this period of time has done to polyamorous relationships? Because, you know, a lot of folks don't live with their partners or they live, they have multiple partners. And I remember reading early on in the pandemic again, too, like this is a really tough time for folks who are not cohabitating if they want to be in each other's pod and that whole negotiation. So is it, is it too soon to sort of tell, or do we have that kind of data? Yeah. So we do have data on monogamous and consensually non-monogamous relationships that we collected last year and also this year. And there are so many interesting things in it. One is that on the monogamous side of things, some people opened up their relationships for the first time during the pandemic, right? Um, Part of that may be that some of them were in long distance relationships and couldn't see each other. And so this was a way of sort of coping and dealing with that. For others, it may have been, you know, I am cooped up with you here all the time. (laughs) And like, we need to do something different to break all of these routines and and really find a way to, to make this relationship work because this is just too much. And then for the side that is consensually non-monogamous, you know, for them, it was also kind of a mixed bag in a lot of ways. You know, um, one of the struggles that many people faced at the beginning was that if you had multiple partners, oftentimes you were only living with one of them. And so then you couldn't see the other partners as much. And so you had to find a way to make those relationships thrive in the absence of physical contact. But then there were also many consensually non-monogamous people in our samples who said that they you know, when lockdown was starting, moved other partners in with them um, because they were afraid they wouldn't be able to see them. And then this created a whole new dynamic, right? right? Because here's this partner who hasn't lived with me before and hasn't really interacted with this other partner. And so there was that struggle of, you know, how do we manage a multi-partner relationship in the same household when some of the people who are involved with the same partner don't have a history together? Um, And then one of the other things we saw was that for for some people in poly and, and open relationships, if they had one partner who wasn't taking the pandemic very seriously and wasn't like masking up and social distancing and all these other sorts of things, uh, they were concerned about the threat that that would provide to their other partners. And so some of them broke up with partners who weren't taking safety precautions because they perceived it as a threat to the other relationships they have. Mm-hmm. So the dynamics were very complex for people in poly and open relationships. That dynamic alone has been fascinating to watch, you know, in our own social circles. Yeah. It's been such a divisive thing. And I can't, I, I mean... Jeremy, what would have happened if I had come out of the pandemic being like, there's no fucking way I'm getting vaccinated. It's, you know. Yeah, that would have been a problem. That would have been a that problem, would have been for, a problem you. for you and I. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's it, it's just it, doing this podcast and my and my other podcast, Sick Boy, where we talk a lot about like health and and um, illness. I just am I I'm never I, I cannot stop being just completely blown away by all of the ways that that this pandemic has affected the world on every every aspect of our lives our 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 social lives our sexual lives our our financial lives our like just every single aspect has been touched in some way and so to hear to hear these little snippets of how how a global pandemic like shifts sex for people is just so unbelievably fascinating. I mean, like 
again, awful that we're going through this, but for a researcher of any kind, I mean, this is just like a treasure trove of, of fascination. It is. And it's, uh, you, you know, it's, it's a naturalistic experiment. And mm -hmm. we decided at the very beginning of the pandemic to, to do a study. So this was in March 2020. And this was the fastest we've ever put a study together and gotten IRB approval to do it and collected the data at this really lightning quick pace. You know, a lot of people were bored and didn't have anything else to do. So it was easy to get research participants as well. Um, so it was just sort of this perfect storm of things where we could collect a lot of data in a short period of time. And we decided you know, we didn't know how long this was going to go on initially. And so we were first thinking we're going to do like one or two waves of data collection in 2020. And then it ended up going through November and we did seven or eight waves just because it kept going on and on. And then this year revisiting it with other studies and it's, it has been fascinating to, to watch. Um, and some of the results are reassuring, like for example, that a majority of the couples that we surveyed feel more passionate about their partner, more committed to their relationship now, right? So a lot of couples like really thrived during this time. A lot of people in poly and open relationships thrived as well because, um, you know, they connected more intensely and, and bonded with multiple partners in a way that they wouldn't have otherwise had the opportunity to because of this. But by the same token, so many people struggled in so many ways. And um, particularly for those who were single, we saw a lot of negative effects mm -hmm. and a lot of ongoing negative effects now still. And there's a lot of variability across socioeconomic status. And, you know, when you look at LGBTQ versus cisgender heterosexual people, so much variation. So like I said, it's been fascinating to watch some encouraging things, some um, depressing things as well. Is, is it too early to... Like as a researcher, is it too early to to think about the ways in which the pandemic will sort of alter sexuality for people in the long run? So like hypothetically, let's say the pandemic ends in six months and we start to go back to some sort of like world that that is much more similar to 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 pre-pandemic. Like, are there other things that you're seeing or trends that you're seeing that you think like, oh, this, this is likely going to stick. This is going to stay. Or or is this like the, you know, the climate change thing where we see these really wonderful changes in the ways that we go about the world and see the the ways in which the earth is like, thank fuck. No one was driving their cars <laughs> for months. And then, you know, when things kind of open back up, it's like, all right, right back to just polluting the earth the way we used to. So I get asked this question frequently, you know, what is the future? How does this permanently potentially impact sex and relationships? And the answer is, we don't know. And I'm very hesitant to make predictions because every prediction that has been made about how this is going to impact sex and relationships has been totally fucking wrong. Right, right? Right. So at the beginning of the pandemic, there were predictions about there's going to be a big baby boom and a huge increase in sexual frequency and activity. And people are going to be masturbating all the time because they're <laughs> bored and horny and none of that stuff came to pass. And later in the pandemic, they were like, well, people are struggling. There's going to be this huge divorce boom. Well, that didn't come to pass either. You know, Ooh. so every prediction that's been made in the media just we haven't really seen that work out now I think the the good thing is that you know we actually have data on which we can base our predictions I think there was just a lot of rampant media speculation to get 
clicks and, you know, eyeballs and, and, and so forth. But if we look at the trends in the data, you know, we did ask people, how do you think your sex life and dating life is going to be different going forward? And, you know, one of the encouraging trends is people are saying they're planning to communicate more with their partners and take more safe sex precautions. And so to the extent that that actually comes to pass, like that's a great thing for public health and, yeah. and for all of us. Um, but you know, when will this ever go away? How long is this going to stick around? And, you know, we know people have short-term memories. Um, so, you know, if this is going to be like a truly long-term, like seismic shift in how people um, navigate sex and relationships, it, it's just too soon to say. Yeah. I, I'm particularly curious about, and it, it's a difficult kind of conversation or to get answers too, because it involves minors, but I'm really curious about these teen, like the teenagers of today, you know, in, in Nova Scotia, um, in the last month or so, everyone's back to school and we're, we're seeing like the young, like first year university students having like massive parties and getting into find and all kinds of trouble for gathering and, and doing things that are deemed unsafe by the province. And it caught me off guard because I feel like if I was a teenager right now, I would be panicking about the, like, I would just be panicking about the planet. I mean, I am sort of panicking about the planet and, but, but they're you're panicking all about still, the planet because you're a grown woman. Think yeah. about when you were a teenager. When I was a teenager, I didn't give a fuck about nothing. I was like, Hey, there, was a, there wasn't a single thing I gave a shit about. I, it makes total sense to me. I'm looking at these teenagers going, yeah, you're teenagers. You guys are going, you guys are going buck wild because that's what you do as a teenager. I was just like, I'm expecting them to be all balding from the stress yeah, no, and just like no. worried about their futures. <laughs> no. But no, I, want, I, want, I would love to know, you know, yeah, if their perspectives on relationships or coupling or not mm. coupling or relationship structures, because we live in such, you know, an echo chamber of, of like, oh yeah, it turns out non-traditional relationship structures are way more common than than we think. But but I I you know I would just love to know what's going on inside their minds about about that. Yeah. I I would love to know too. And unfortunately, it is really hard to collect data from adolescents on their sex lives and relationships, because if you're under 18, you have to get parental permission right. for them to be able to be in your study. And, you know, that creates some hurdles because lots of parents are like, I'm not going to let you ask my kids about sex. Right. So, you know, we have very limited data and knowledge on that, but something I'm curious about specifically with regard to the pandemic is let's look at adolescents who say, right as we were going into lockdown, we're, turning the age at which, you know, most adolescents start really exploring their sexuality with a partner. And now suddenly for many of them, this has been delayed by two years, right? So what are right, the long-term right. psychosocial implications of delayed sexual development, right? So this is a time when many of them would have been exploring sex. They would have been developing their first relationships and now they haven't. And instead they've been in this environment that has created a lot of fear and anxiety around just interacting with other people in person. And so I, I have some concerns about, you know, this cohort of kids growing up and what that's going to mean for their long-term health in terms of their sex lives and relationships. Yeah. Even the physiology of it, I was just, someone was just asking me the other day about the connection of physical touch and mental health, like well-being and to have, 
lost a lot of that over the last couple of years, those like cascades of happiness chemicals and, and pro-social like bonding chemicals and instead be stuck inside with your screens uh, and your technology will, will that, will that affect our development? Will we be able to reconnect after this? Will we be able to reintroduce touch at the same time as we're also trying to learn about consent as well, which I think, think is a really interesting timing for this, but. Yeah. And those are all such great questions and related to that, you know, going back to the adolescent sexual development, well, let's say you've got these two years and then they're spending a lot more time with pornography mm-hmm. than they are with people in real life. You know, what are the implications of that? Where if your only sexual outlet for this prolonged period of time is porn versus, you know, having some in-person interaction, there could be implications of that as well. And I think in terms of, you know, will we be able to go back and connect in the ways that we did before, it's probably going to vary depending on kind of where people are in the lifespan and what they were used to before. Um, You know, if you're talking about younger people who maybe didn't have as much social connection before, you know, the bar is going to be higher for them um, coming out of this, right? But for those of us who were used to a lot of social interaction before, we can slip back into that maybe a little more easily. Mm. Uh, let's talk about one of my favorite things to talk about, uh, that we have brought up on the show thousands of times in the past, uh, threesomes. <laughs> you, uh, I, before we started rolling, you mentioned that you've, you've been, uh, doing some research and, and have, have been coming across some interesting things in the, in the realm of threesomes. Uh, what, what is, what is that research? What are you, what are you, what are you working on? Yeah, so I became really interested in threesomes when I published a book a couple of years ago called Tell Me What You Want, which we talked about on our previous podcast. Mm -hmm. And I surveyed 4,000 some Americans about their sexual fantasies and having a threesome was the most popular fantasy that people reported. So since then, I've tried to do a deep dive into the world of threesomes to, to better understand them. And one of the things that I think is interesting to look at is like, well, just how many people have ever had a threesome? You know, we haven't until recently had any reliable data points on this because it just hasn't been asked about Mm. on surveys. You know, it's sort of assumed that sex is just like this two person coupled activity. And it's like, well, you know, a lot of people bring in more partners and, you know, we need to understand that and understand diversity and sexual behavior. So in one of the recent studies that we conducted, um, we had this large sample that was sexually diverse to try and look at, you know, what are the rates of participation in threesomes? And we actually collected two samples. One was just college students. And then the other was this broader, more diverse sample of people collected online. Um, Because, you know, when people talk about threesomes, they tend to think, oh, that's like a young person thing. And like the college students are doing it all the time. And it's like, you know, I kind of had the suspicion that maybe they weren't. (laughs) And, you know, when you look at the data, they're, you know, college age people are actually the least likely to have threesomes and they become Mm. more common um, as people get older, right? So overall, we found that about one in three people in our very diverse sample with respect to age and sexuality had had a threesome before, and it was less than half of that for the the college age individuals. So it tells us if you want to study threesomes, like the college environment is not like really where all the action is is happening. And I think it makes sense for a few reasons. Like one is as people get older, they give fewer fucks about what other people think. And so that sort of 
frees them up to explore their sexuality uh, a little bit more. And then also when people are younger and like sex is new to them, like just navigating sex with one person can be tricky and challenging, let alone having multiple people. So I think part of it too is also kind of like experience, comfort level, and uh, you know, also your self-confidence as a person, which which grows over time as well. That Mm. makes so much sense to me. I I think the idea of a threesome when I was college age or younger would have terrified terrified me yeah. just the pressure of that yeah. the idea was exciting for me mm-hmm. but the, the to get there was i i mean it, it like I, I wonder how much how much maturity and and like ability to communicate also kind of plays a role in that it just absolutely you know like it i feel like my ability to communicate those types of things as a college student that i, I didn't have the, those tools but you know as you grow older and have more partners and come into your own and and find ways to communicate effectively, then, then it, it seems like it would be a lot easier uh, because as, as we know, like communication is such a key element to introducing somebody else to the bedroom. Um, yeah. Right. And I mean, just imagine if your one and only threesome experience was when you were like drunk in college Mm -hmm. or something and you didn't have like that self confidence and communication. And it was like with, some random people or something like, you know, that's probably not going to lead to an optimal experience where everybody gets what they want. And so I think, you know, exploring your sexual fantasies as you age, uh, I think creates more opportunities for them, for the fantasy to live up to the reality. Mm, Yeah, no doubt. Justin, I I gotta say it's, it's always like just such a pleasure to sit down and and pick your brain. Uh, You are obviously a very, deep wealth of knowledge and um we are just so grateful to to have had just a, a little bit of your time this evening to be able to chat with you um is there anything else that you wanted to touch on that we we haven't that we haven't hit yet um oh i should talk very briefly about our latest study on polyamory because you might find it interesting yeah um <laughs> It's one of the first papers to look at the concept of compersion, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And, you know, so many people have described compersion as the opposite of jealousy. And if anyone's listening and they don't know what compersion is, compersion is when you take pleasure in your partner's pleasure, right? So, for example, if your partner is with somebody else sexually and they're really enjoying it, like you're happy for them, you know, that's compersion, right? And so a lot of people have said compersion must be the opposite of jealousy. But what we did in our work was we created this scale to measure compersion. And then we also measured jealousy at the same time. And what we find is that they're not polar opposites and that you can experience both compersion and jealousy at the same time. Mm. And so I, I think that's important for people who are polyamorous or who are interested in dabbling in polyamory to understand, which is that you don't necessarily totally eliminate jealousy. Just, you know, um, jealousy can coexist with, with this concept of compersion. And that's something that a lot of people I think really struggle with. And so it's important to find ways to, to manage and navigate jealousy in any type of relationship. And so a handy resource I'd like to recommend is called the, the jealousy workbook. So it's a great book that you can get that kind of runs you through different scenarios and you can kind of work through how you would resolve your feelings in them. And so it's just a way of kind of thinking in advance about how are you going to deal with jealousy when, and if it pops up. Well, it's interesting because somebody asked me about compersion recently and, and what my experiences with compersion were. And the first thing that came to mind was 
16 years ago at my yoga teacher training, our mindfulness teacher talking about uh, the philosophy of a parigraha, which means non-possessiveness. And, and the image that he painted for us was this idea of, and I've never forgotten it, this idea of like loving someone with an open palm. So imagine like your palms are open and love is like a bird that can come and it can land in your hand and it can spend time with you, but it's also free to come and go. And if you close your hand over it, it's like, you know, you hurt it or it's unhappy, but if you keep it open and you you just have the stress that it's going to come back and it's going to be there. And, and that was the first thing that came up with this, with this compersion question. Mm. Cause I think, I feel like it, being introduced to that idea, you know, in my early 20s sort of mentally prepared me for compersion. Mm. But also in mindfulness, th- there's a lot of conversation about the the ability to hold conflicting emotion, two conflicting emotions at the same time. Yeah. And uh, and so, yeah, I just kind of wanted to chime in with with, you know, it's not all that different than a mindfulness practice. If you can tune in to it's not yeah it's not all that different from that kid that made a friend with the bee remember do you see that no it was uh in the news recently a kid made friends with the bee and the bee would just land on the kid and <laughs> hang out with them and then go away and <laughs> and the mom was like i don't get it but this bee just really likes my kid that is so cute <laughs> i'll find it that's too cute i'm gonna cry it was really cute <laughs> Oh fuck! But that uh, resonates so with you too, Justin, as a as a way of accessing the idea of compersion. Yeah, I mean, it sounds beautiful like, in theory, <laughs> yeah. but yeah. can people actually achieve that level of um, you know openness and be able to let go of other feelings that they might have? Mm-hmm. And I think it's harder in practice than we might like to think it is, or we might hope (laughs) that it would be. And then I think also related to that, you know, some people who are polyamorous, you know, they, they begin poly and don't experience jealousy, but then later at some point they do start experiencing it. And it's like this totally foreign emotion to them. And maybe it's triggered by a specific partner that their partner has or something. And so, you know, jealousy, even though you might have dealt with it or didn't experience it previously is something that can also pop up at other points in life. And so I think, um, you know, that's something that's also worth recognizing in, in the world of polyamory. Has there been much science on jealousy, like what is happening or like what what's happening in the mind or or physiologically? I mean, there's been a ton of research on jealousy, but, you know, most of it looks at it through this very narrow lens. And it's usually specifically in the context of like heterosexual monogamous relationships and looking at differences in how men and women experience jealousy. And, you know, a lot of that work says that men are more sexually jealous and women are more emotionally jealous. And, Mm. uh, you know, so there's a lot of work from that sort of paradigm, but not as much looking at, you know, sort of what is the neurobiological underpinning of jealousy and, you know, how does it express or manifest itself in diverse sexualities and relationships. So I think there's still a lot more to learn there. Yeah, I guess anytime you hear anything black and white, like men men are this way and women are this way, you should always be a little suspicious. Yeah, call way. call BS on it, maybe. <laughs> yeah. yeah, don't don't you tell me that I'm from Mars. I can go wherever I, I can be. From I don't know. I read I that book in my teenage years, yeah. and it seemed to make sense to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Justin, thanks again for for sitting down and chatting with us. This has been really fun. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. If anyone wants to listen 
to my podcast or learn more about me, you can visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com. You're missing out if you're not listening because yeah. you're having some fascinating conversations. Yeah. And uh, I'm really grateful Most for your work. Yeah. Well, there we go. Another highlight conversation for the with, highlight reel. With a sexpert. With a sexpert. I, 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 um, before we started recording, I was saying that like these conversations are really just like, it's the best. I love it. I love that this is my job. I feel like when I think about like how long we've been doing the podcast and I think about like, you know, it's, it's like one of those never ending tunnels where there's no, there's, it's never like there's an end to the project. Mm. The project just continues and goes and goes and goes and goes. But it's when we have conversations with, with folks like Justin, where I'm like, wow, we've come a long way to be able to just like yeah. dial up a expert and get to talk to them. Yeah. He's uh, I mean, he's obviously great at what he does, but on top of that, a great communicator and um, just fun to listen to uh fun to like i said earlier pick his brain i wonder if he'll ever do any sort of counseling or anything like that because he seems like he's got the he's very the cal- bedside manner he does yeah you know yeah 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 i would yeah definitely like could see myself seeking counsel with him never would have guessed he was a pinball wizard i wish i knew that before we started recording with him <laughs> because i fucking love pinball do you i love my resurgence what is that what you'd say like my resurgence no my renewed love for pinball started um, when I started going to Propeller Arcade here in Halifax that has Ian who runs that place. Oh. He's a pinball wizard as well. And he's got tons of refurbished, beautiful pinball machines in there. And I love that game. It's like I just just rediscovered my love for chess recently. Okay. And I am as stoked about chess as I am about pinball. That's interesting because chess to me, you know, as an as an outsider seems to require a lot more skill and strategy than pinball. When I look at pinball, I just assume it's just a, it's luck. No, not at all. So, <laughs> I mean, we, look, we don't have to get into it, but there are certain places on the, on the, in the machine, on the board that you want to get the ball right. and, and you're, and really you're trying to do it in like specific orders. So you're trying to like open up new pathways by hitting certain things in the machine and then once you've like unlocked those other pathways, then you're trying to get the ball to go there. And it's all about where you, when you, the paddles, when you flick a paddle, if you flick the ball at the top of the paddle, it's going to, and say you're using the right paddle, yeah. it's going to stay more to the right. But if you flick the ball end. at the end of the paddle on the right, on it's going to shoot On the medial end of the, on, of oh, the paddle, if we were speaking anatomically. Here we go. Brian's getting into <laughs> it. School's popping back up. Uh, listen, one of the things that I talked, this has nothing to do with Termion. Copy that. However, I think it's worth mentioning. Remember I said in the conversation about the girl that befriended a bee? Yeah, I know we'd come visit her and so come and uh, go. She's from Wales. A teenager keeps Bumblebee as pet after it followed her home. Lacey Schillinglaw, 13, says Bee has refused to leave her side since she rescued it earlier this month. A teenager who rescued a bumblebee says it, it's now her loyal pet, sleeping by her bed and even following her to shops and bowling alleys. 
Lacey Schillinglaw, 13, spotted the large, fluffy bumblebee laying in the road while walking her two dogs or her dogs two weeks ago. She scooped up the bee, now named Betty, noticing (laughs) noticing that it had a crumpled wing and tried to put it in a safe spot on some flowers in a nearby park. But it refused to stay put, buzzing back over to Lacey and crawling all over her. After an hour, she gave up and headed home with the creature perched on her shoulder. And despite repeated attempts to leave her outside, the buzzy friend has refused to leave Lacey's side ever since. Here's a photo. I can't. Of her with the bee. Okay. And if you want to see this. This kid looks like a kid that she would looks have like a, a pet bee. She, she does. She looks like a bee girl. Uh, if you want to see this, you can go to patreon.com slash turn me on and uh, you can watch all of our aftercare and uh, foreplay segments. Wow. So that's one image of her with the bee. Um, that's a huge bee. That bee is like a, a percentage of the size. It's of a big forehead. motherfucker. I know. Uh, she said, quote, I'm so happy and I just love spending my time with her. She's so fluffy and I love our friendship. Betty hitched her first ride when Lacey found the insect on August 7th while walking with mom, Laura uh, Pashley, 35. Uh, on the way home, Betty perched on the girl's glasses when she went to her local shop to buy milk. Shocking other shoppers. Here's another photo of the bee. No. She's hanging out on the girl's neck. On her neck? The insect apparently enjoys sharing jammy dodgers. <laughs> eating Those are the, cookies. So eating right. the middle while Lacey nibbles on the edges. Yeah. Jammy dodgers. Um, the insect, uh, Lacey also feeds it sugar water, honey, and strawberry jam, as well as uh, Harry Bro Tang Fastics. Harry Bows, they make the gummy bears. That make you shit. Yeah. Lacey takes her bee pal into the garden to feast on flower nectar. But as soon as the teen goes back inside, Betty is right beside her. I'm confused. Does the bee not need other bees to live? Apparently not. I mean, I no. Don't they usually live all together in like a hive? I know bee, I, like honeybees do. I don't oh, know about bumblebees. Bumblebees are different. I don't know. Okay. I've never really seen a bumblebee hive. Is there more? So uh, at night, Lacey tucks Betty up in a little pod next to her bed. Stop it. And while there's no lid, the animal stays put until morning. No, it doesn't. During the day, Betty nestles on the back of Lacey's neck or inside her sleeve between buzzes around the living room. Uh, Betty apparently even liked a stroke between the wings, but steers clear of the rest of the family. Car salesman Dad Lee Pashley, 35, and siblings Vinnie Pashley and Nine, uh, Vinnie Pashley Nine, and Betsy, Betsy Blue Pashley, who's five, uh, the bee doesn't go around them. The insect whose wing is now recovered went bowling with Lacey and 14 other members of her family earlier this month. What? Uh, she stayed on Lacey throughout both games for two and a half hours. Uh, Laura, who makes edible flower bouquets, said, quote, she absolutely loves her. This is her mom. It's completely lovely and also bonkers. Betty wanders all over her, including her face, her glasses, and even between her toes. She's on her 90% of the day, so it's beautiful, just gorgeous. I can't believe Lacey isn't scared. Oh, my God. Uh, bumblebees sting, and like wasps, they can repeatedly sting you without hurting or dying like honeybees do. Okay. I didn't know that. I thought bumblebees definitely died. Um, yeah, so it's... And, and I guess Lacey's hair is like right down to her bum, and the bee just climbs in it like some kind of hair jungle. And they have the doors open all the time, but the bee just doesn't want doesn't to go. Now, this was... My this hurt. I know. This story came out... Um, in August of this year. And in September, uh, the bee stung Lacey and turns out she was allergic, didn't <gasps> know when she died. Fuck off. 
No, I'm just joking. Obviously, as soon as someone dies, you know that Jeremy's pulling your leg. I'm just kidding. But uh, how fucking sweet is that? Isn't that the cutest thing ever? Now, I think we're going to ruin the sweetness of this because... Oh, yeah. There's, well, a, there's another B story that you wanted yeah, to cover this, came, this week. This, which came, this came from a different B story. But I just want to say that I did recently learn or read somewhere a headline. I'm sure it was legit. That bugs have emotion, have feelings like people do. Maybe not like people do, but they, they have feel. This is bananas. This is bonkers. Yeah. Do you ever watch uh, Starship Troopers? No. Interesting movie about bugs. Okay. Yeah. And, okay. And whether or not they have feelings. You ever see ants? I have. The movie yeah. Ants. Yeah, yeah, I have. It's a really interesting movie about bugs. I, I mean, I feel like <laughs> everything has feelings. You know, it's like you don't give a, you don't give, you don't give that plant, you don't stick that plant close enough to the sun. It gets sad. The plant gets sad when you give when you give the plant, and people could go, well, that's not the plant sad. That's the plant fucking dying. But like. It's not happy. There's some, yeah, there's something <laughs> like when you see a plant that is getting enough water and getting enough sun, it looks like a happy plant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It literally, it expresses itself. Its leaves express itself in a more boisterous, flamboyant, happy way. Yeah. Donut's very happy right now chewing the shit out of your boots. My boots. Donut, you love that, right? Look, look at the feelings he has about those Donda. boots. Chew anything else. I love donuts so much. He can chew on whatever he wants to chew on. Um, so are we going to now talk about people who fuck bees? Is, uh, that what's, well, is that what's going on here? This is going to uh, get weird. So um, the headline Earmuffs, of Lacey. this. Don't, don't listen, Lacey. Yeah. D- this is like probably <laughs> probably this bee um, is a lot happier with Lacey than it would be in this subreddit where people talk about having sex with bees um, wow. the, the sub headline is they like bee butts and they cannot lie. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That tickles my funny bone. Um, okay. As a teenager, whenever Marvin now a 27 year old software engineer from Phoenix, Arizona, whenever he watched videos of bees on the national geographic channel, he felt a peculiar excitement that left him aroused though feeling confused. Holy fuck. So this isn't, this isn't, this isn't like bee fan fiction erotic fan fiction this is like people who legit get turned on by bees yeah it came as a tingling sensation running down his spine and often if not always resulting in an experience similar to an orgasm holy fuck vice agreed to identify marvin and other people that we've spoken to for this piece by pseudonyms because they all felt uncomfortable discussing their bee fetish in public whoa so as the unnamed feeling evolved, Marvin tried looking up bee fantasy or insect fetish online to find others who might have had similar experiences. For seven years, for seven years, the search didn't turn up anything. Mm-hmm. Then around 2019, he got a hit. In a not-safe-for-work thread on Reddit, scores of people described an uncontrollable urge to fornicate with bees a wild lust to submit to a dominant bee, a euphoric beegasm feeling turned on, oh, a, a, a euphoric beegasm feeling turned on after watching the queen bee ravish multiple partners. What? Many of them revealed that they no longer watched regular porn, having swapped it for videos of bees doing the deed or pollinating around town. 
So they're watching bees fuck other bees mm-hmm. and bees getting like covered in pollen. Yeah, it's like a, a voyeuristic kind of porn, obviously. Cause- I wonder if this would fall under the category of paraphilia. Oh, 100%. Uh, Marvin scrolled through the po- through post after post on the thread. I realized I wanted to have sex with bees when I was 17, but it wasn't until recently that I found my community where it was safe to talk about my ardor for lewd AR bug content. What's a- what would AR stand for there? AR. Like augmented reality? Oh, okay, yeah, I don't of course. Know. Welcome to r slash honeyfuckers, a subreddit with more than 34,000 members who share their erotic, buzzy fantasies through anime and other art forms. The concept is simple. Even if the allure is not immediately self-evident, honeyfuckers, which is what the subreddit members are called, upload sexualized images of bees, which could be any gender, and talk about everything from banging worker bees in swimsuits to thick be booties. Lens 35, oh. the subreddit mod- moderator, started the group in 2018. The inspiration to create a community space where people can share their stories about bee sex came from the Honey Bee Inn, a fictional brothel in the video game series Final Fantasy VII, where girls roam around in bee costumes for the player to interact with. Walking into the Honeybee Inn in the original game hit an 11-year-old me in a way I couldn't put into words but smoldered in the recesses of my mind, Linz told Vice. Out here, people with an innate attraction or a desire to have sex with these pollinating insects mingle and create art to share with the community, who in turn open conversations and discuss buzzing topics in their niche, all brought together with a shared lust for bees. When my friend and I began creating memes and finding images of bee smut for the subreddit, we quickly learned that there are many categories of honeyfuckers out there, said Linz. Some are attracted to anthropomorphic bees or people dressed up as bees. Some are attracted to the idea of becoming bee-sized and enjoying their fantasy that way. Some are more drawn to the archetypal furry style of bees, while others just like cute anime bees. But some people literally want to fuck actual bees, shove them up their butts, pussies, or cocks. That, that's got to suck. Mm-hmm. I, and I don't mean that's got to suck. I mean, it would suck having a bee shoved up your asshole. Unless you, li- unless, you li- I, I, unless you liked it. I guess if you liked it. Squish. Um, but what I mean by that would suck is like, can you imagine having a... Um, a stinger, a stinger pulled out of no, your... having a having a like a a sexual desire for something that like really just isn't available, you know, like first of all, if you're fucking bees like that, you're gonna kill them, yeah, you can't you're shoving bees up your ass, you're gonna kill the bees, so I'm gonna die I'm may may and maybe that's a part of the excitement. imagine being a vegan and being attracted to bees. Couldn't happen. Copy. Couldn't okay. happen. Um, but like, like that's the thing. It's like you're you're attracted to this thing that just like can't be. Mm. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> no, stop it. Fuck off. Uh, it's just such a bummer. Like, they, if you're attracted, if you if they, they, you know someone dressing up as a bee, awesome. Sure. You can like you can pull that off every night. 
or the anime thing. It's like, okay, well, you have the you have the source to like get yourself off by looking at it or or you know thinking about it. But like, if you are one of those people that are like, I like fuck people dressing up as bees, and I don't want no anime kid shit. Like, I want real bees. I want bees up my hoo ha. I don't think you can do. I don't think you can. And if you can, it's gonna it's gonna be bad. I could imagine. Imagine this. A what a bummer. A, a sex toy like a light bulb shaped that you could but that's like on a long pole. Hear me out. You could put this pole with the light bulb shape into into a pussy or into a butthole. So it creates its own little case inside and then you could feed bees down the pole oh, yeah. and into the light bulb. Yeah, right. Then and you then, get that buzzing sensation yeah. inside of you. And the buzz and the bees wouldn't have to die. Again, ethically, not cool for the bees. But but that would that's not a bad idea for these people. Well, maybe I should If anyone's li- yeah, I mean, you should I probably should jump on. on the fucking subreddit and go, "Guys, I just came up with a wicked sex toy idea for you." <laughs> I'm sure it's on there. Um, it, it's spooky season. It's Halloween. I've been watching a lot of horror movies and the way I kicked off the season, oh. trying to do 31 horror movies in 31 days. Uh, I kicked it off by watching for the first time because I put it off because I was too scared to watch it because as a kid. Candyman? Candyman, yeah. I never watched it because when I was a kid, someone told me about Candyman and it freaked the fuck out of me. And then I just never got around to watching it until now as an adult. Watched the first one, so Candyman from like 1992. Yeah. And then watched the remake, uh, or sorry, the, the, I guess, sequel that just came out that was executive produced by Jordan Peele. Oh, wait. When did it come out? Like last year. Or oh, no, sorry, seen, th- this month, this year. I, I haven't seen this. Came out in September. Is it good? It's fucking awesome. Oh, man. How, like, how does it relate to the first one? If I told you that, it would ruin the movie. Okay, copy. So no spoilers, but okay. it's a sequel. Okay. Um, but if you haven't seen that movie, it is very bee heavy. Yeah. Candyman is covered in bees. And that's the story of like, when Candyman, it's kind of like Freddy Krueger, like the parents threw him in a fire and, and burn him alive. And that's why he's like burned, all burned in his face. Candyman, they covered him <gasps> oh, before they burned right. him. They covered him in bees and he got stung all over. So when Candyman manifests in real life, there's like always bees around and there's, but in the new movie, there's some like really crazy bee content. And I bet you that movie was a, boner fest for honey fuckers alike can i also take this somewhere else not turn me on related but kind of turn me on related because it sort of incorporates my first female crush sure um um mary stewart masterson who is the actress that plays Iggy threadgood in fried green tomatoes there's a scene where she she's called the bee charmer in that movie um, by other characters and there's a scene where she goes to a tree and retrieves like a honeycomb from a tree that's like buzzing with bees Ooh. and she brings it back and um, Mary Louise Parker who plays her best friend in the movie is just like oh you're nothing but a bee charmer that's what you are Itchy Threadgood nothing but a bee charmer anyway Itchy Threadgood or Mary Stuart Masterson the actress that played that role she did that stunt herself in real life. Whoa! In real life, because the stunt person like didn't show up that day, or right. something bananas. So she's legitimately 
guppies all over her. In the original Candyman, yeah. the woman who plays the lead actress gets covered in bees and that it's not CGI. Like oh. this is 1992. Can't sell that shit. And I, and I was like, whoa, dude, this is like, they put a, like a fucking bee beard on her. It was wild. And I was thinking to myself, like, I, I have I have a bit of a phobia of bees. Like, minor phobia of bees or, uh, or well, hornets more so. Yeah, that's right. Hornets. Um, There's no fucking way, man. There's no fucking way I could do that in a movie. A bee beard? Come on. It's pretty intense. I wonder, you know, when it comes to, like, film set safety... If that's like a relatively safe, it is a relatively safe thing. Stunt to yeah. do, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, should I finish this article? Oh, on the bees, or I mean, I are think we, we get good? it. Yeah, um, let me just let me just. We get it. We're 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 okay. People love bees so much they want to stick them up their ass. I get it. Yeah, I get it. I guess there's no real conclusion to this. There, it does have a name. It does. The desire to have sex with bees is known as melissophilia. Melissophilia. Yeah. Mm. Um, which, and, which and is that's a broad, very specific to bees, or is that no, like a general term for like insect fucking? Uh, uh, a broad definition of people who experience arousal from contact with bees or bee stings. There, yeah. Man, there really is a lid for every pot. Yeah. Um, some may, may prefer getting stung by a bee to make their genitals hypersensitive. Hmm. I, I mean... Different strokes for different folks. Oh, wait. There's also formicophilia, the sexual interest in being nibbled at or crawled on by insects. I've seen formicophilia. Some, I've seen some videos of that. Have you? Yeah. And it's not, it's, it's not what you, it's hard to watch. It's what? intense. Ooh, okay. The, the nibble on part, it's, it's, um, nibble is not the, nibble does not, is not the right word. Oh, okay. All right. Um, uh, Pornhub uh, is making... So here's... This is, a, I think, a Twitter post from April 16th, 2019 from Pornhub. We are making it our mission to ensure Mother Nature is sexually active, introducing bisexual, a new genre of porn dedicated to saving bees, with titles like Mature Natural Gets Plowed by Worker Bee and How to Make a Flower Come in Three Seconds. Uh, the videos are safe for work, but the background sound is is not exactly what you would get from a buzzing garden. Um, instead, instead, popular oh God, voices I'm from the porn I'm watching this video right now. This is fucking insane. Industry lend their sexy voices and moans to the bees. For every view, Pornhub... Pornhub donates to bee saving charities. Oh my god, they really for for context, what I'm watching is literally just a bee on a flower pollinating it, but they've got these voiceovers <laughs> of people being like, I'm gonna I'm gonna come I'm gonna cover you in pollen. Wow. wow, man. Wow. What an interesting world we live in. And what a weird way to end, wrap up our conversation with Jess Lane Miller. Um, <laughs> uh, folks, thanks for tuning in. Uh, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leave a rating and review. And on Spotify, hit the follow button. And again, if you want to support the podcast, you can go to Termion Podcast. 
Actually, you can go to patreon.com slash turn me on podcast. Nope. Patreon.com slash turn me on. We'd love to see you there. We'd love Good luck finding it. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, to all of our patrons, we, we really do love you. You make the show go round. Hey, patrons. Um, this is for you, but it's also for everyone, but mostly for patrons. Um, we are throwing a human connection through touch yeah. uh, session on November 14th. I have announced it now in the aftercare of the last couple of episodes. I'm coming at you this week with a time. We're going to do it at 11.30 a.m. Eastern time. Nice. For like 75 minutes, so an hour and a little bit. Um, for you and someone you feel comfortable making physical contact with, if you miss the first one, this kind of um, session is really just about like a little bit of partner massage. It can be with someone you have a sexual relationship with or someone you don't have a sexual relationship with. It doesn't go into that territory. It's really just about making each other, helping each other feel good and relaxed and cared for in a nice, safe little nugget of space. And we'll be filming it probably right from here, from the Sick Boy Studio um, streaming it and uh, and again it'll be about 75 minutes 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time Human Connection Through Touch it's free for nice. our patrons um, and it'll be 25 bucks a couple of people uh, I say a couple of people meaning a pair 25 bucks a pair to join um, free for patrons it's not too late to get in on it for free if you sign up for our Patreon at any level at patreon.com slash Jermian. Sweet. Uh, thanks for tuning in, folks. Uh, we appreciate all of you. Hope you enjoyed this. We'll be back next week with another great conversation. And uh, that is it for this week. Until next week. Don't touch yourself. Go fuck a bee. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.